Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Huh. Watching Kyle's unboxing videos again? Yeah, he always finds the coolest... No way! A robot dog? Gotta ask where he got it. Or use your Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Just draw a circle around the dog on your screen, and it shows you where to buy it right in the app. Oh, I just learned a new trick. And that for once, I beat Kyle to the next big thing. Circle it, find it, with the new Galaxy S24 Ultra, and circle the search with Google. Get yours now at Samsung.com. Internet connection required. Results may vary based on visuals. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. I reached Durban to find myself a popular hero. I was received as if I had won a great victory. The harbour was decorated with flags. Bands and crowds thronged the quays. The admiral, the general, the mayor pressed on board to grasp my hand. I was nearly torn to pieces by enthusiastic kindness. Whirled along on the shoulders of the crowd, I was carried to the steps of the town hall, where nothing would content them but a speech which after a becoming reluctance, I was induced to deliver. So that, uh, Dominic, the third of um, three brilliant impressions of Winston Churchill. I think your impressions have now now reached a kind of decadent phase, Tom. (laughs) They're increasingly (laughs) incomprehensible. Um, Well, if you could make that out, what Churchill was saying was that he's arrived in Durban and he's the hero of the hour. And so basically, Dominic, all everything we've been talking about, his great ambitions, his desire to cut a dash as an international hero has come true. And this is against the backdrop of his exploits in the Boer War. Uh, not one of the most glorious moments in um, British imperial history. Uh, but Churchill lights it up with a blaze of glory. And we'll go into the details of, of why, what it is that Churchill does, the dramatic adventure he has that becomes the topic of obsessive international interest over the course of this episode. But I guess, um, first of all, we should do two things, shouldn't we? First of all, we should um, look at where Churchill is situated in terms of his career once he's come back from the Sudan. And then yeah. we should look at the the framework that leads Britain to go to war in South Africa uh, against the Boers. Two quite complicated things. So Churchill, for those of you who listened to the first two episodes, um, born in 1874, aristocratic stroke American stock. Um, we talked about his sort of miserable parentage or par- the, the miserable parenting of Randolph and Jenny, his, his um, father and mother. Um, he's gone to Harrow. He's gone to Sandhurst. He's had these adventures in Cuba and in India. And then, of course, in the Sudan with that great cavalry charge at Omdurman. Um, Churchill had always thought of all these adventures and his time in the army as the preface to a, a greater story, which would be his entrance into the political arena to sort of vindicate the memory of his Tory Democrat father, Lord Randolph. Um, and when he comes back from the Sudan, He's already written a book about um, his adventures in the Northwest Frontier. He writes another book called The River War, which is quite a quite a success um, about sort of his adventures with Kitchener's army going all the way to Khartoum. And 
he, using that sort of fame, he fights his first election in Oldham. Um, he's approached by the Conservatives in Oldham. So Oldham, for those people, particularly non-British listeners, um, it was a constituency in Lancashire that elected that sent two MPs to Parliament. It's a kind of cotton town, very working-class town. So Churchill um, was, was was displeased to find that there was no hotel. Um, so it's sort of not really, you know, obvious, an obvious conservative place. territory. No, but in those days. I mean, people would often represent constituencies with with which they had apps, they, they, with which they had nothing in common, but they wouldn't even make the pretense as they do now that they deep down love the constituency. But a, a town full of mill workers isn't obvious. I mean, it's not ob- an obvious congruence with the grandson of the Duke of Marlborough. No, no, you're absolutely right. And in fact, they do a, a, a funny thing happens when he fights this election in um, July 1899. Uh, so it's a by-election. So as I said, there are two seats. So there are two radical liberals, Arthur Emmett and Walter Runciman, the father of the great historian, Sir Stephen Runciman, yeah, the Crusades historian, mm-hmm. Tom. You must have read Stephen Runciman. Yeah. Um, but the Tories put up, they put up Churchill, and they put up a man called Mr. Maudsley. Mr. Maudsley is the secretary of the Operative Spinners Association. So he's an absolutely sort of dyed-in-the-wool, working-class Tory. He's a great sort of, he calls himself the champion of Tory socialism. He says both parties, Churchill writes in, my early life, he says, Mr. Morsley said that both parties were hypocritical, but the Liberals were worse. He was proud to stand up on the platform with a scion of the ancient British aristocracy in the cause of the working people who knew him so well. And they actually, they actually sort of campaign under the label, the scion and the socialist. That's great. There's something for the Tories to keep the red wall. <laughs> well, exactly. It is very good of red wall politics, isn't it? And it um, uh, gives you a sense of how... Edward, sort of late Victorian Edwardian politics, how different it was in many ways from, you know, what we yeah. assume the, the constellation will be. Anyway, um, they, they lost. <laughs> they didn't lose by very much. Churchill lost by, I mean, only, a, what, 1,200 votes or something. Um, everybody blamed him, but he wasn't, uh, he wasn't disgraced. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't humiliated. It was clear that he, would, he was well-placed to have another go at Oldham. Um, in his biography, Andrew Roberts says of this moment, Churchill always had good luck. You know, great politicians are often sort of favoured by fortune. Had had Churchill won in Oldham, as he could have done, he would have been in the House of Commons um, at the time of the outbreak of the Boer War. And had that happened, he would not have been able to make this extraordinary name for himself, um, which he does when the war in South Africa does break out at the end of the year. We should talk about the war in South Africa, the Boer War. It's actually the second Boer War, isn't it? But the roots of the war go back quite a long way because um, the Cape has been settled by mostly people from the Netherlands, the Dutch Republic, um, but not exclusively. And they take on the name of Boers, farmers. Uh, Then the British arrive. They establish a colony at Cape Town and they start nannying the Boers as they see it, because the British are not in favour of the Boers, let's call it unwoke approach to race relations. <laughs> um, unwoke, that's one way of putting it. Yeah. So so essentially the, the, the Boers are, well, I mean, these are the people who in due course will um, come up with the policy of apartheid. And they are, they're fed up with what they see as, as British finger wagging. And so they, um, they pile into their wagons, the Vertrekkers, they call themselves, and they head off inland. And they established three republics, didn't they? Um, what is it? Uh, Natal, Free State, and the Transvaal. Natal is British. Well, no, because because in due course, the Boers go in, inland. The British are content to see them go. But then over the course of the decades that follow, uh, for various strategic reasons to begin with, so that's why they take over Natal, because they want to, uh, that's on the coast. And so they want to, um, the eastern coast. So that's important for controlling the shipping lanes. But then in due course, uh, what happens in the Transvaal is that in 1867, a guy finds what is called the Eureka Diamond. So it's the first huge diamond to be found in the Transvaal. And then four years later, uh, more diamonds are found on the farm of a pair of brothers who are called Johannes Nicolas and Diedrich Arnoldus de Beer. And so the de Beers form a company and this becomes, of course, the most famous diamond company in the world. And you get all kinds of prospectors, mostly British, piling into the Transvaal. 
And that becomes even more so when uh, gold is also discovered. And Paul Kruger, who is the the leader of the Transvaal, says that this is you know this is a disaster, that this gold will will cause the country to be soaked in blood. And these are very very um, accurate words because basically the British are you know they want it, they want the diamonds and they want the gold. It's a quite a complicated story, a fascinating story. So you have by the end of the nineteenth century. There had been the Boers had fought a war against the British, the First Boer War, where they basically fought and they and asserted their independence. And they win, and, and this won. Is yes, the, won. So, so this is, the, I think, I mean, this, this is the not since the American War of Independence had Britain negotiated a treaty in the wake of such a defeat. Yeah, Majuba Hill. Yeah. Um, so the Boers had uh, by the end of the nineteenth century, the two Boer republics, Trans, the Transvaal and the Orange Free State, and there are two uh, British, effectively British sort of colonies, the Cape Colony and Natal on the East Coast. And what has happened? So part of it is greed. Part of it is the fight for resources. So as you said, there's been the diamonds, and then there's the huge gold rush with the discovery of gold on the Rand around yes, Johannesburg. And, and the, the, this, you know, huge pit, settler's town, and this becomes Johannesburg. What, what are called the outlanders have kind of piled in. They're yeah. not given the vote because the Boers don't want to lose their monopoly of political power. So that becomes the sort of one of the great British pretexts that all these English speakers, all these British subjects have piled into the Transvaal in particular, but they're not allowed to vote. They're deprived of political rights and the British want to sort of, they say they want to stand up for them. Obviously, the British also want the gold and the diamonds. They also want to eliminate the Boer Republic's you know, to, to sort of wipe away the stain of defeat in the First Boer War. They're also very interested in Cecil Rhodes's great project of the railway that will go from Cairo to the Cape. So in other words, they want a whole, the map splashed with British imperial pink. They want a line that goes all the way from the Mediterranean, all the way down to the Cape Colony at the very bottom of South Africa. And the two Boer republics sit in the way of that. Um, yeah. And they are determined to, and tension mounts and mounts and mounts. We should just mention the Jameson Raid, shouldn't we? Because a, a participant in that will feature in in this story, Leander Star Jameson. What a great name! Yes. Um, so that's a that's a the latter days of 1895, the first days of 1896. It's launched from Rhodesia, so what's now Zimbabwe, and it's an attempt to kind of rouse the the British in Transvaal, and it's a dismal failure. It is a failure. And it's pretty clear that uh, Jameson, who was operating as kind of freebooter, had been put up to it, or at least was doing it with the complicity of the big man in British politics, who is the colonial secretary, Joseph Chamberlain, great former mayor of Birmingham, very much the political titan of the age, arguably even more so than the prime minister, Lord Salisbury. And one of the two or three political characters who had, I think, most influence on Churchill, who Churchill most looked up to. So Churchill is, as you can tell when you read My Early Life, he's obsessed with Joseph Chamberlain, father of Neville. And he sees him as the great sort of political colossus of the age. Chamberlain is the imperialist par excellence. He wants to wipe the Boers basically off the map of South of, of Africa and complete the task of the sort of scramble for Africa and giving Britain this yeah. sort of huge swathe of, of pink. So generally, Britain's engagement in Africa has been a fusion of of land grab and moralism. It, it's been about establishing themselves as as the kind of primary imperial power, but also mm. I mean, authentically interest in getting rid of the slave trade, all that kind of thing. And there's kind of trace elements of that moralizing in the campaign to ensure that British British subjects in Transvaal have the vote, and also that yeah. um, the the oppression of uh, uh, Africans in Transvaal is kind of, I mean, you know, not exactly completely stopped, but moderated, let's say. But I, that is pretty thin gruel, I think, by this point. I think essentially this is a, a fairly naked land grab, wouldn't you say? I mean, you were you were you were harumphing a little bit at my casting of the, this as as an inglorious episode. In no, you said it was bad behaviour. I think it is bad behaviour. I think it's just ruthless behaviour, Tom. I mean, it's not like they're they're sniffing out a kind of indigenous kingdom. I mean, this is a different set, a rival settler. Well, no, society, it's, yes, isn't it, it? so it's Europeans, and that's what for, for people back in Britain is all part of the fun, isn't it? They've had their crack against the Mahdi and his army, and that was easy. But now it's yeah. kind of like going, you know, Champions League or something. This is an yeah, opportunity. Yeah, through to the next round. To, yeah, <laughs> through to the next round. 
um, and they assume that they're going to go all the way. But I, I, you say it's, it's kind of ruthless behavior. Of course, it's absolute ruthless behavior. But I do think that in general, the British had sugarcoated their ruthlessness in Africa with an authentic moralizing sense of mission. Which isn't there but, in the Boer War. Which is not there in the Boer War. And that is why it's a hugely unpopular war with the rest of world opinion. I mean, this it is world opinion, definitely. Although it's, uh, the British tried to use it as a way of sort of cementing um, imperial brotherhood. So there are troops from, you know, Australia and so on. There are all kinds of recruitment things in Canada. and But, but, but in America, in continental Europe, it's, it's seen, I think, as what it is, which is bullying. Um, it is it's, perceived it's, as bullying. There's, there's this kind of faint hint of Putin, I think, about what happens. Oh, that's that, very harsh. Uh, the British um, start to mass troops along the border of the Transvaal. It's the Boers who actually declare war. The, the Boers issue they do. an ultimatum. Yes, they do. Yeah. They do. And the, and, and the British you know, ignore it. And so war breaks out. So Kruger, the leader of the, the Boers, Paul Kruger, he moves first. He thinks he can forestall the British. The atmosphere gradually but steadily became tense. Charged with electricity, laden with the presage of storm. Golly, did you say it just like that, Tom? Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much. Golly, well. So Churchill, of course, is delighted. This is another opportunity for him to go on one of his great adventures. Um, he say, he actually writes in his autobiography, I must confess that in the ardour of youth, I was much relieved to learn that the war would not be entirely one-sided or peter out in a mere parade <laughs> or demonstration. I thought it very sporting of the Burrs to take on the whole British Empire. And I felt glad that they were not defenceless and put themselves in the wrong by making preparations. So he's, you know, he very much takes the sort of Champions League yeah. um, attitude to it. It's another match. Yeah. He's desperate to be in on Go it. for gold. Um, he gets it yet again, Literally. another lucrative um, newspaper deal, this time for the, with the Morning Post. It's a record at this point for a war correspondent. They, they agreed to pay him £1,000 for four months. To put that in context, we mentioned this actually in the first episode, Conan Doyle is out there. Roger Kipling yeah. is out there. Uh, Edgar Wallace, who writes the original story that gives rise to King Kong, is out there. So a lot of very eminent writers are going out, but Churchill is the best paid of the lot. Yeah. And I think the reason for that isn't just that he is um, a very good writer, but it's also <laughs> his reputation for going to, you know, the heart of danger. Um, yeah. He'll get, everyone knows he'll get into trouble. Everyone knows that he'll get scoops. Yeah. So he goes off, he sets sail three days after war is declared. He takes with him six cases <laughs> of claret, champagne and spirits. So he's absolutely well prepared. But he's very seasick, isn't he? He is seasick. There's a very he, one of the people on the boat is from the Guardian, the Manchester Guardian, and he writes a lovely. Uh, I, I think it's one of the best descriptions of the young Churchill. So he describes him as this sort of jolly fellow, kind of you know going around the deck, and he says, "I had not before encountered this sort of ambition, unabashed, frankly egotistical, communicating his excitement and extorting sympathy. It was not that he was without the faculty of self criticism." He could laugh at his dreams of glory, and he had an impish fun. I think that's very much. Yeah, some sort yeah, of he's ambitious. He's bumptious. He's aware of his own comic side, and he often likes to play up to that. I think it's one of the things that that makes him endearing. But he's on the boat, isn't he, with um, Redvers Buller, who is <laughs> yeah. the splendidly named commander, the man who's yes. been appointed to lead the British forces, um, and essentially, he's exactly what that name conveys. He's like a very slow, ponderous bull. Yes. Uh, and, <laughs> and the British aren't actually wearing their red coats at this point. They have accepted that they need to wear khaki, although there lots of people are very distressed about this. But there is a sense that um, the British army is, is a ponderous bull that is just waiting to be outsmarted by the far more agile and mobile Boer farmers. And so it proves... Well, because even though Britain is the world's foremost imperial power... Britain is not a great army country. I mean, we relied, you know, so much on the navy, and when the army had fought, with the exception of Crimea, since the Battle of Waterloo, the army has tended to fight technologically greatly inferior and more disorganised kind of indigenous peoples. So yeah. they're not really very good actually at fighting land battles. And the Boers actually have better weaponry, don't they? They've got better rifles. Basically, it seems to the British they're cheating. They don't kind of march out in slow, ponderous red lines. <laughs> they hide behind rocks with their, you know, with their, um, with their Mausers, which can shoot faster and, um, at a greater distance than the, uh, the, the British Lee Enfields. And, um, they're also very, very proficient on horseback. And Churchill actually claims that they're the most capable mounted warriors since the Mongols. 
And essentially, the by, since the Mongols, wow. say by the time that Redvers Buller with Churchill arrives in Cape Town, it, the war has already gone disastrously wrong for the British because yes. the Boers have gone on the offensive. They haven't just kind of hunkered down in the Transvaal. They've they've kind of moved out, and they they march out from um, from Transvaal. They march out from the Orange Free State, and there is a rail line that that links Johannesburg um, to Durban, which is the, on the coast in Natal, which is British ruled, um, and. There is a town called Ladysmith, which is just outside the Transvaal, so within British controlled territory. And the Boers are able, you know, they inflict so many defeats on the British arms that they're in, in a position to invest it and lay it under siege. And that is basically yeah. the situation when Churchill arrives. And it's all about getting to Ladysmith for Churchill. So, should we take a break here, Tom, and um, reconvene to find out what happens to Churchill? And uh, let me tell you, at first, it's not good. So we'll come back after the break to see what it is. Bye-bye, drama. Bye. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. 25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Alan Grunto-Williams slips through. Here's a shot, and it's in! This is a game changer for sports. Sabina takes a shot herself. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IonNWSL.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person, and I appreciate you, and I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are in the town of Estcourt. Uh, in Natal, in what is now South Africa. And Winston Churchill has gone out there. He's at the railway station with a, a small British force who know that somewhere out there in the sort of the scrublands beyond the Boers, but they don't know exactly where they are. And Tom, Wednesday, the 15th of November, 1899, the commander of the garrison at Escort decides that he's going to send an armoured train out on patrol and uh, Churchill hears about this, and he's very keen to go, isn't he? Well, because he wants to get to Ladysmith. So escort is just down the, the line from uh, from Ladysmith. And so the wheeze is that you <laughs> you send an armoured train up the up the railways, and this hopefully would, from Churchill's point of view, would take him close enough to Ladysmith that he could then hop off, sneak through the Burr lines, and get into Ladysmith and write exclusives, and it will all be great. Hurrah! However, there is a problem. When you're up against very mobile, very agile um, troops who are very, very adept at hiding behind rocks, sending in a very slow and ponderous train <laughs> perhaps isn't the best policy because essentially yeah. you're making yourself an absolute sitting duck for an ambush. And that is exactly what happens. Yes. Yeah, so they travel 14. I mean, this is an absolute turning point in Churchill's life because it's the moment more than anything else that makes him famous. So funnily enough, if you said to people at any point up to the First World War and, and arguably in the years after the First World War, what is Winston Churchill famous for? It would be the episode with the train and then what happens next. So they steam for 14 miles north to, towards a place called Cheveley. And um, they actually spot Burr, what looked like Burr guerrillas sort of on the horizon. And Churchill, I mean, he muddies this a bit actually in his own account. But other people basically say Churchill is very gung-ho. And he says, oh, we don't really, you know, we don't really need to worry about that. It'll be absolutely fine. 
because he's there. He's both the war correspondent, but of course, there's a slight element of him being a combatant as well, because you know he's yeah, a he's armed. Yeah. He's he's got exactly he's got the history. Um, <laughs> anyway, they run on. Then suddenly, I mean, there's an absolutely fantastic swashbuckling kind of dramatic account in my early life, Churchill's um, autobiography. There are suddenly these bright flashes of light. Uh, the huge white ball of smoke sprang into being and tore out in a cone above my head and shrapnel flying everywhere. There's a gigantic crash from the front of the train and um, all kinds of explosions and a shock. And then they're, they're all sort of um, pitched head over heels onto the floor. And basically what has happened is they, the Boers have derailed the train. They put rocks on the line and they've laid a trap for the British. They've derailed the train and now they are pumping shells and bullets into the kind of crashed hulk of the train while Churchill and his comrades are sort of staggering to their feet and trying to get cover. So it's an incredibly dramatic kind of Hollywoodish scene. And actually Churchill then behaves with tremendous sort of courage and gallantry. So he, he kind of rallies the survivors and they try to get some of the trucks off the line. The commander has survived, hasn't he? And he's a, he's a, a chap called um, Haldane, Captain. Yes. Uh, what's it? Aylma, is he? Aylma? I can't remember. Aylma Haldane, I think it is, something like that. Yes. So he's, he's, he's there with his troops, but Churchill's courage in this is really spectacular because he kind of rushes forward and he, he takes command of the effort to try and get the train back on the tracks, doesn't he? Get the rocks off, yeah. get the train back on the track so it can then steam off. And the bullets are kind of fire pinging, pinging all the time. I mean, it's very much like from, from Cuba onwards, this has been Churchill's story that he puts himself in the thick of the action. He's completely, he has this extraordinary gift of not losing his composure under fire. So suppose his head. Well, people <laughs> later point. on say that he was, he was sort of walking around blithely saying, keep cool men. And sometimes he actually has the effrontery to say, this will be interesting for the paper. <laughs> <laughs> Which must be absolutely enraging to hear if you're one of the British yeah. soldiers terrified of being hit. But he does all this. He goes to the, he gets the engine driver and the engine driver, who is a civilian, he's been hit by shrapnel. So there's blood pouring from his face. And he, Churchill says, how do you fancy restarting the train and driving on through all this? And the, the train driver basically says, not bloody likely, you know, this is the last thing I want to do. And Churchill says to him, do you not know that it's, it's statistically impossible for somebody to be hit twice on the same day. So if you've been hit once, you're absolutely fine. There's no danger. If you've been wounded and you behave with gallantry, you'll definitely get a medal. And I will give I will make sure you get a medal and you'll never get this chance again in your life. And amazingly, the engine driver succumbs to Churchill's entreaties and basically wipes off the blood and climbs back into his cab and obeys his orders to try and restart the train. And actually, to his credit, Churchill, many years later when he was Home Secretary, he tracked down the train driver, and made sure that he was awarded the Albert Medal, the uh, highest reward for gallantry oh, for the civilians. That, that reflects very so that well. That was more than a decade later. So that is, that's a story yeah. that reflects well on everybody, I think. Go so the, tra the train goes off, doesn't it? But Churchill gets captured, basically because he's yeah. left his, his, his gun behind. So he has no choice. Well, because a lot of the men have been left. They can't all go off when the engine escapes. So a lot of them are left behind. Churchill's one of them. Uh, as you said, he's... He, he's, he's He's left his gun, so he's cornered by a horseman, um, and very reluctantly he eventually waves his handkerchief like all the others do, and they're taken prisoner by the Boers. But it's lucky and that he – I mean, on one level, it's very unlucky that he didn't have his gun because otherwise he could have shot his way out. But in the other way, it's very lucky because if he'd had his gun with him when he was captured, his claim to be you know, an innocent journalist would have put him in real danger, I think. It would because um, he would know. then have been a spy. Yeah. See, because he's, but as it is, he can claim to be, as you said, a war correspondent. He, as soon as they're captured, he says to the Boers, I'm a war correspondent. You have to let me go. You know, under the laws of war, you're not allowed to, to take me a prisoner. And one of them uh, supposedly says to him, uh, we don't catch the son of, they know, they recognize his name. And one of them says to him, we don't catch the son of a lord every day. Well, we not just him. any lord, because Randolph Churchill had been f notoriously rude about the Boers. Had he? Yeah. So there's a real, a real grudge there. So they're, they're delighted to have Lord Randolph Churchill's son in their hands, uh, absolutely determined not to lose him. And so they, they, um, they, they put him and everybody else on a train, uh, lock him up, can't get off, and they arrive in Pretoria. And uh, there there is a teacher training college that's been built three years earlier called the Stutz Model School. And there they are 
they're there in prison. Yeah. And Churchill says that when they arrived, that it was a, like a new boy at a private school. He, he, he unbelievably does things like when he's in prison, he tries to have a suit made and he has a, a man come in to cut, to cut it. Yeah, tweed suit. A tweed he suit. He has the local barber come in to cut his hair. You know, it's, it is, it, it, it's a sort of cross between a prison, a boarding school and a hotel, it seems to me. Which, which reflects well on the burrs because... Oh, yeah, know, very well treated. Uh, very Churchill well treated. Very they can receive visit- visitors. They can buy newspapers, all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, Church is able to cast checks. <laughs> but the security is very tight, which is a frustration to Churchill because he is desperate to escape. And I think he's desperate to escape, not just because he knows that it would be um, a dramatic adventure that would be good for good for the newspaper, good for his career, but also because he, he discovers that he has an absolute horror of being confined. And, and that makes yeah. sense, doesn't it? Because he's a guy who... Who, who treats the entire British Empire as a, a stage for his adventures. So to be hemmed in like that is both humiliating and, I guess, very claustrophobic. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. I think, I mean, they, they arrive in Pretoria on the 18th of November, and for three weeks he sort of paces around chafing, and he's always talking about it. I mean, they're, they're always concocting schemes, him and the other officers. You know, could they somehow take over the prison? What could they yeah. do? So, so it won't surprise anyone who knows about Churchill's enthusiasm for mad wheezes in the Second World War that 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 his his schemes are always incredibly complicated, um, kind of baroque. <laughs> um, but there are there are two others there. So, um, Elmer Haldane, who we mentioned, who was um, in charge of the troops on the train, and then a guy called Adam Brocky, who is Irish, a, a sergeant major, but had lived in South Africa for most of his life and had taken part in the Jameson raid. So if if that had come out, he would have been in real trouble. So that's why he's with the officers. He pretends to a rank, so he claims to be a lieutenant, that he didn't actually have. Otherwise, he wouldn't be, you know, in the... Uh, right, because the, the officers, officers and men were in yeah. prison separately. Yeah. So it, it's quite important for him to get out before yeah. his captors realise who, who exactly he is. And they essentially fashion a scheme that is a lot less complicated than Churchill's, which basically involves just jumping over a fence. Yeah, because there's a toilet block basically. Yeah, that there's a particular. They watch the sentries. There's a particular moment where the sentries have walked past the toilet block, and if they they turn and they often turn and they start they have they're having a smoke and they're chatting the sentries, and just for a few moments they have their backs turned and they can't see what's going on, and you could then climb onto the toilet block, climb over the fence, and drop down the other side. And the other side, this is in sort of suburban Pretoria, so it's just somebody's villa the other side, the garden. Um, and it's the night of the 12th of December, isn't it? Well, Churchill has sort of been badgering the others and saying, let's do it, let's do it. And Churchill being Churchill, he goes first. So he waits for the centuries to chat. And then he, I mean, he, his his rendition of the story is, of course, very melodramatic. It was now or never. I stood on a ledge, seized the top of the wall with my hands and drew myself up. Twice I let myself down again in sickly hesitation and then with a third resolve, I scrambled up and over and all this kind of thing. So he's over and he looks back and he sees the sentries and they're still smoking and they haven't noticed. And then he just, he waits, waits. he waits for the two other <laughs> bugs. Time goes by and they just never join him. They never come. And they basically, their moment has never come. They don't get the chance. And I this think- is a real problem because they've got the provisions and Brocky speaks Dutch. Yeah, Churchill doesn't speak Dutch. Speaks Afrikaans. So Churchill, I think, has four bars of chocolate in his pocket, and that's it. And he doesn't speak a word of Afrikaans. Yeah. So, and he's got his nice brown suit on. So it's probably quite, probably <laughs> so, quite hot. So what should he do? So obviously, being Churchill, he decides, well, he'll, he'll carry on anyway. Did you see the note he'd left? He'd left a note on his bed for the prison governor that said, um, I've decided to escape from your custody. So there's no attempt to say Yeah, and he's very, he's very complimentary, isn't he, about... Um, he says, you know, you've looked after me royally, and when I get out, I'm escaping now. I will tell everybody how well you've behaved. And he does, actually. Have, let's meet up and have a good chinwag about it in due course. Yes. But, yes. you know, it's, he is now... This is highly dangerous for him, because he is their most prized prisoner, and by escaping, he has essentially made himself liable for a death sentence. So, I mean, this is an incredible scene. It's such Hollywood melodrama. And so what he has to do, he has to, it's brought about 250 miles to the the coast of what's now Mozambique. uh, Mozambique. So Portuguese East Africa. 
So he has to cross about 200 miles of the Transvaal without a map, without the local la- any of the local languages, no provisions, no compass, absolutely nothing. But he assumes, I'm Churchill, I will do it. And so he, he heads off. It's unbelievable. So he walks through the garden of this villa with his hands in his pockets, whistling, walks down the street, and there are people who pass him. But he's in his sort of civilian brown suit, so nobody really takes a second glance. And he just keeps going. And he's, he's obviously, his mind is racing the whole time. Yeah, it's nearly 300 miles to the coast. Um, and he thinks, well, the railway, that's what I'll head for. Um, this, so he, he heads for the railway. He sees the station after about two hours and he hides in a ditch sort of just beyond the station. I mean, this is now, you know, this, this is real kind of rider haggard, John Buchan sort of behavior. And he waits and waits and waits. Night has fallen. He waits. The train goes by. It begins to gather speed. And at that moment, he, he leaps for the train. Very he grabs something. He's sort of dragged along for a moment. Then he manages to haul himself up. And incredibly, he's managed to haul himself onto this, the fifth truck along, I think, from the engine, a goods train. And he climbs on. I mean, it's real, you know, Harrison Ford it's, stuff. Yeah, he climbs really onto amazing. the truck and he hides among the coal sacks and he falls, he falls asleep. And then he wakes. Um, it's still night, but it's, he realizes he's got to really get off the train before daybreak. So, I mean, again, he um, he leaps off the train while it's moving and sort of he doesn't injure himself particularly for once. It's still dark. I was in the middle of a wide valley surrounded by low hills and carpeted with high grass drenched in dew. He finds a pool and he has a drink. Dawn breaks. He looks for the um, to the sun. He's in the absolute middle of nowhere. He knows nobody. He has no provisions. His My sole companion, he says, was... was <laughs> A gigantic vulture yes. who manifested an extravagant <laughs> interest in my condition and made hideous and ominous gurglings yeah. from time yeah. to time. So, but so, meanwhile, back in the prison, he has done the kind of the classic. Uh, you know, he's he's put pillows um, into his bed to make it look as though he's still there. And so, uh, an orderly comes in, leaves his mug of tea, goes back out again, and he'd probably been all right, maybe for a day, except that he'd forgotten that he'd ordered the barber to come in. <laughs> He'd forgotten to cancel it. So the barber comes in, prods the pillow, realises what's happened. The alarm goes off, and essentially the whole of Transvaal now starts to devote itself to the manhunt for Churchill. And they put out um, things saying that he's he's escaped disguised as a woman. They offer descriptions of him. Yes, very like Mr. Toad. And they make him sound like Mr. Toad in the the descriptions that they offer of him. I suppose he does look a bit like Mr. Toad. He does, yeah. So it's 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 all looking very bad. Meanwhile, Churchill is kind of weaving his way slowly eastwards. But I mean, I mean, it's a long, long way, and um, he he's hoping to catch another train. But as the night comes, but he you know he waits and waits and waits, and no trains come because they've you know they've worked this out, and so they've cancelled all the trains. So what's he going to do now? Well, he sees this eventually after a lot of trudging, and. Um... I mean, he says, actually, Tom, you were talking in an earlier episode about Churchill and his faith. But this is the He says this is the one time in his life when he prays, which is just desperate for something to turn up. And, and Churchill does. being Churchill, it does, yeah. Because he sees what seems to be the opening of a mine. And he goes down and he just thinks, I have no choice but to try and brazen this out. So he goes and knocks on the, the do- one of the doors of the, one of the houses by the mine, by the mine opening. And the bloke, a voice says, there is da. And Churchill says in English, he says, I'm a, I'm a burger. I've had an accident. I was going to join my commando at Kamati Port. I've fallen off the train. We were skylarking. I've been unconscious for hours. I think I may have dislocated my shoulder. And this, the man who Churchill can't really make out says, come in. So Churchill goes in. And the man is such a Hollywood scene. The man puts a gun down on the table and says, I think I'd like to know a little more about this railway accident of yours. And then Churchill says, I think I'd better tell you the truth. And the man says, I think you had. And Churchill says, I am Winston Churchill, war correspondent of the Morning Post. I've escaped last night from Pretoria. I'm making my way to the frontier. I have plenty of money. Will you help me? And the man just looks at him with a gun between them on the table. And then the ultimate Hollywood moment, the man gets to his feet and holds out his hand and says, 
Thank God you have come here. It's the only house for 20 miles where you would not have been handed over. But we're all British here and we will see you through. So by just an incredible stroke of fortune, Churchill has found this man called Mr. John Howard, who's the manager of the Transvaal Collieries. He's been living in the Transvaal for years, but is British and obviously sympathizes with the British. And um, Howard talks to all his men and they, they're all pro-British as well. But, the, but there's a servant, isn't there, that, um, who Howard doesn't trust. And so they decide he can't hide in the house. That's so right, there's nothing yes. for it but to hide him down the mine shaft. And so they take him down this mine shaft along the cu- and there's a kind of side room. And they just leave him there in, in the absolute dark on the assumption that there are candles that he can use. One of the miners is from Oldham. Did you see this? So from the very constituency that Churchill, uh, Mr. Dewsnap, who yeah. <laughs> Churchill says, locked my hand in a grip of crushing vigour. They'll all vote for you next time. <laughs> <laughs> so Churchill is down there in the mine. And he's down there, but they, they've left him with candles. And so they assume that he'll be able to light them. But he gropes around, he can't find them. Uh, and yeah. in due course, so he spends what a day, a night, and no, it's three days, three days, Tom. He has, but he loses all track of time. And eventually, they come down and say, um, you know, well, wh- why didn't you light a candle? And he said, well, there aren't any candles. Ah, oh, the rats have eaten them. And he looks around and he's felt the rats crawling all over him, sitting on him, nibbling at him, and they're all albino. So very, yeah. very sinister and Indiana Jones. But eventually. They, the miners come up with a, the mine manager comes up with a plan, doesn't he? He says there's a, a Dutchman nearby who they trust, who's sending a load of wool to Mozambique, to what's now Maputo on the coast. Um, and, uh, he's agreed that basically Churchill can hide inside the kind of consignment of wool on the train. Um, and that's exactly what happens. So, uh, Churchill, of course, he, he spends the time reading. He's got Stevenson's, Robert Louis Stevenson's kidnapped, all things with him. So he reads Kidnapped. He says, um, he finds it very th- thrilling. <laughs> it awakens sensations with which I was only too familiar. Um, so he, what did he, when did he escape? He escaped on the 12th. He escaped on the 12th. So he's been, he's escaped for seven days. It's a week now. On the morning of the 19th, um, they load him basically onto the train. The train is being loaded by the mine, and Churchill, they're going to give him the signal. He sneaks out of the mine. Nobody says anything. Nobody looks at him. He sneaks onto the um, onto a truck and hides among the wool bales, and then sort of darkness descends, and off they go. And all day, all night, they travel eastward, the train through the Transvaal. Um, they go through stations, and he hears people talking and moving around him, but he doesn't dare move or obviously say anything. And then eventually, um, they move. Then they stop, and then they're moving again. And he looks through a chink, and he sees Portuguese words written on the signs, and hears the sees the uniform of the Portuguese officials, and he knows they've got through to what's now Mozambique. And then he kind of pushes his head out from underneath the truck and sings and shouts and fires his revolver in the air with joy because he's he's out, he's free, he's out, he's escaped, and he goes to the British consul, doesn't he, and gets put on a boat to Durban, and that's yeah. um, that's then the scene. That but we it's such a British moment, with. Tom, when he goes to the British consulate, he presents himself at the British consulate, and the, the person there says, um, the consul can't see you, you today, come <laughs> to his office at nine o'clock tomorrow if you want anything, and Churchill goes, loses his temper and says, you know, don't you know who I am, and all this, tells them the story, and then, of course, everybody's delighted to see him, and as you said, they put him on a boat to Durban, and when he arrives in Durban, by the time he arrives, he, di- he discovers that the war has been going even worse while he's been away. And they've had what's called the Black Week of the British Army when the British lost three battles in a row, at Stromberg, at Magus Fontaine, and at Colenso, the worst of all, where Redford's Buller had been defeated. Um, 2,000, well, almost 3,000 men have been killed or wounded or captured. The, the war is going terribly, but his escape is the great news. You know, it's the sort of, you can absolutely see how the sort of the tabloid press of the day, as it were, seize on this story, this single act of intrepid heroism. And so when he gets off at Durban, there are bands and crowds on the keys. There are people rushing to shake his hand. He gives a speech where he says they can't possibly lose in South Africa and everybody's cheering and crying and waving and all of this thing. People shouting, God bless you. And and with that, I suppose you could say, I mean, that crowns Churchill's early life because this is the moment that he's long dreamed of. He is the hero of the empire because he has redeemed Britain's honor 
at a time when the generals on the battlefield have been busily engaged in losing it. Yeah. And he, I mean, astonishingly, he, he pulls his favorite trick, doesn't he, of, of going back. Um, and he actually secures a commission. So he's simultaneously a war correspondent and back in yeah. the army. He says the, the next two months are the happiest of his life. He's riding around. The Boers are finally on the run. Uh, and he, he actually ends up going to Pretoria, doesn't he? And he? He does. He goes back into Pretoria in June 1900 with a South African light horse. And he has the pleasure of, as, his, as he would call it, liberating the very prison in which he himself had been held prisoner with his cousin, the Duke of Marlborough. They go in. There's the prison. Churchill waves his hat in the air and cheers and all huzzah, the prisoners huzzah. cheer. Yeah. They tear down the Boer flag. They raise the Union Jack. Um, it, you can, um, I mean, for somebody who had always thought his life was a romantic melodrama, I mean, this these must have moment. been transcendent moments, ecstatic moments. Yeah. Because he's living the daydreams that he had had when he was a boy. He's a, a kind of, you know, hero of all Jingo imperialists. But it has to be said that he is... He behaves very well, doesn't he, to the Boers? He sticks up for them. He salutes them as noble adversaries. And we've been talking about this throughout all these episodes, that although Churchill loves a good war and loves the kind of the, the pinging of bullets around him, once the war is over, he likes to settle down, have a beer with the opponents, talk over the yeah. match, all that kind of thing. And that's basically his, his approach, that the Boers should be treated as honourable adversaries. Exactly. And this is where he comes up against his old enemy, General Kitchener, whose approach to the birds is, is not remotely of that order at all. Well, it's scorched earth. So from 19, from sort of 1900, 1901, the war slightly changes. The British have begin to prevail on the battlefield. Um, Kitchener, come, first Lord Roberts, and then Kitchener come in to, to conduct the war in a much more ruthless way. Um, they end up herding sort of the Boers, the Boer civilians into concentration camps um, so that they can basically starve out the guerrillas. And it then becomes an attritional, very bloody, um, sort of dirty campaign. So, And Churchill doesn't really like it. Your characterization, I completely agree with. So Churchill has this motto, in war, resolution, in defeat, defiance, in victory, magnanimity, in peace, goodwill. And actually, it sounds like, you know, empty sort of political boilerplate, but he really believes it. So he he's constantly writing in his dispatches for the Morning Post or in Telegrams Home, we should treat the Dutch farmers with greater magnanimity. You know, they are they were sort of honorable opponents who we have defeated, and now we should extend the hand of friendship, all this kind of thing. Um, and, and that does mean that although he's a conservative, and although he then goes and fights a, an election in back in Oldham, and this time, of course, he wins, and Mr. Jewsnap from Oldham, his wife is in the gallery. There was general jubilation. Yes, right, one of his public meetings. He mentions Mr. Jewsnap's name, and people say, his wife's here, his wife's here, and everyone's absolutely delighted. So he wins, but even in in victory, he's still making, you know, he's still saying, we should, you know, we should treat the Boers uh, better. We should reach a sort of honourable peace with them and so forth. And in fact, in his very maiden, in his maiden speech, um, which is in the 15th of February, 1901, so the war is still going on. In his maiden speech, he says the words, if I were a Boer fighting in the field, and if I were a Boer, I hope I should be fighting in the field. And there's a real sense of sort of discontent that ripples through the Tory benches. And Joseph Chamberlain, the colonial secretary, who's sitting on the front bench, mutters, is audibly mutters, that's the way to throw away seats. Because, in other words, Churchill is not endorsing the kind of jing jingoistic mood um, that, has, that has sort of prevailed in British politics. Um, so even at that stage, Churchill is a very semi-detached member of the Tory party. And actually, he doesn't last in the Tory party very long. So he's out within within a few years. But of course, but because of the Boer War and because of the Sudan and all of that kind of thing, whatever kind of political vicissitudes affect him, he's enshrined in the public mind, people who aren't very interested in politics, as the great imperial hero, the kind of yeah. the, the, the character from a romantic melodrama. And that, I guess, is how he made his name. Well, an extraordinary story. Um, and I think sets sets us up nicely to come back to look at the further developments in Churchill's career, which, of course, is a great blaze of uh, colour and controversy right the way up to uh, up to 1940. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed that. 
I guess I guess really that's our the, the second series of episodes we've done on a great imperial hero, isn't it? So we did General Gordon. General um, Gordon. I guess Churchill is not conventionally thought of in those terms because of course his record in the Second World War um dominates everything else. But of course that level of achievement at such a young age, the 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 range of places he'd been to, the number of wars he'd fought, the number of books he'd written, the number of articles he'd composed, an astonishing feat. Um, yeah. And maybe even his father would have been proud of him. Who knows? He might as well. No, Lord Randolph, he probably wouldn't. But I, I agree with you. I think it is astonishing. And I think it's one of those things, it's a bit like... Um, it's it's a bit like writing about Shakespeare or the Beatles or something because they're so ubiquitous. You, you, you're itching to find some way to devalue them and to be revisionist and to therefore say something iconoclastic. But actually, the truth of it with Churchill's early life, with those first sort of thirty years or so, is that it, it really is an unbelievably gripping and enjoyable story with this kind of impish, ridiculously overambitious, often very conceited, but enormously endearing and sort of self-mocking, self-mythologizing character at the center, who it's impossible, I would say, now maybe not all listeners will agree, and that's fair enough, but I would say it's almost, I find it impossible to dislike. And actually, the two imperial heroes, I mean, my God. You'd rather you'd rather spend an evening with Churchill than Gordon, wouldn't you? Yeah, you'd rather spend, yeah. I mean, a lifetime with Churchill than an evening with Gordon, I would say. Yeah, I think possibly. an evening with General Gordon would not be, yeah. you know, it, it's not an evening with Dame Edna or something, is it? An evening <laughs> with General Gordon. <laughs> no. Well, anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, our first sally into Churchilliana. Uh, great fun. Thank you very much, Dominic, uh, for suggesting Thank it. You, Tom. Uh, hope you all enjoyed it, and we will be back very soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom... How often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe?